I pray that as we sit under the um, ministry of Your Word, that we would not simply be sitting, but rather in our hearts we would be straining upward, straining toward Christ who is the goal of our upward call. I pray that You would so stir our hearts to faith, so stir our hearts to zeal for Christ, that we would have a longing for Him that could be satisfied by nothing here in this life, but only by Him alone. I ask this in His ever-blessed name. Amen. There's a little phrase in Isaiah 11. It says, a little child will lead them. Um, well, actually, uh, we had a, a group of children lead us this morning. I chose Psalm 119 uh, for the children's sermon because it illustrates perfectly the point that Paul uh, is implying in our text this morning. And I must say, I was impressed um, at, uh, at their knowledge, even, even of, of some of the trivia of the Bible. The longest chapter, the shortest chapter. And it just reflects uh, parents who are uh, teaching them in the Word. It, it reflected, and you should have seen their hearts uh, this morning as they were looking at me. Just It reflected a, a, um, a zeal for Christ even at their young age. And... Um, and I very much appreciated, uh, and and they are helping me to worship this morning. Psalm 119. As as I read it, I want to remind you of verses 10 through 12, and also verse 14. In verse 10, the psalmist says, "With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments." Verse 11. I have stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. Verse 12, Blessed are You, O Lord. Teach me. You can hear Him crying out. Teach me Your statutes. Verse 14, In the way of Your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Only a Christian can say that and really mean it. But the desires expressed are not the desires of some super-duper Christian, but rather this is a normal Christian desire. It's a regular, normal, run-of-the-mill Christian desire that wants to seek God with all their heart. I found it interesting that this passage in Psalm 119 is directed toward young people. Not towards the old and the mature, but towards young people. It's a regular, normal, run-of-the-mill um, Christian who stores up God's Word in their hearts so that they won't sin against God. It is a regular, normal, run-of-the-mill Christian that wants to know God's Word as the psalmist expresses his desire to know God's Word. It is a regular, 
normal, run-of-the-mill Christian that delights in God's Word as, as much as anyone could delight in all riches. It is these regular, normal, run-of-the-mill Christian desires that are, that are driving Paul's desires in Philippians 3, verses, um, verses 10 through 16. And so if you have your Bibles open to Philippians 3, look back a couple of verses and it goes back a couple of weeks in our time in Philippians to verse 10. He says that I may know Him and that I may know the power of His resurrection, that I may share in His sufferings, that I may become like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. These expressions of Paul's desires here are simply normal, run-of-the-mill, um, regular Christian desires. And so that's why in verses... Um, in verses 12 and 13... or I'm sorry, verses... Um, 13 and 14, halfway through verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward, um, for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is expressing these desires but they are simply normal, regular, run-of-the-mill Christian desires. Now, I know that I jumped into the deep end of the pool this morning. Uh, I know if you're, you weren't here last week or you can't remember last week's sermon, you might have a, a hard time following uh, where I'm going with this. So I'm going to slow down just a bit. And I want to look at the last part of our passage, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, "...let those of us who are mature think this way. If, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained." And what Paul's doing here is he is saying that the desires that he expressed in verses 10 through 14 are simply typical desires um, of a mature Christian. But then he says that if on any point you think otherwise or don't have the same desires, that God will bring you around. He will, as he says in verse 15, He will reveal that to you um, as as well. And so Paul is saying here, this is normal. This is typical. It's typical for a mature person in Christ and it is typical for those uh, who, who are less mature who don't have those desires. You say, well, how can that be? Well, Paul could have been very direct. He could have chosen a more direct way of saying that all Christians wholeheartedly seek Christ as their chief and highest desire. But he took a more indirect route in order to be more pastoral towards those who did not have the same mindset. Paul knew that every Christian has a different set of circumstances, a different set of experiences, 
For instance, Paul's life, his whole life from the time he met Christ on the Damascus Road throughout all his missionary journeys, his life was exceptional. He experienced great triumphs. He suffered great persecutions. He cared for the church. But his only responsibility, or or rather, he was the only one responsible for his welfare. Other Christians helped him. But he just basically had to look after himself as well as the church. And what I'm driving at is Paul was free to go all in for Christ. But contrast that with, say, a man who had a wife and several children and uh, they came to Christ as Paul was, was, doing his, was, was out preaching and the man, because of his faith in Christ, has lost his job. He's lost his standing in, commun- in the community. And so he's laboring to support his family. He's working hard to protect his wife and his children from persecution. And he's dealing with all the trivialities of life that he frankly has to deal with in order to care for his family. And so his focus on Christ is not as sharp. Push comes to shove. This man would choose Christ above everything else. He desires Christ, but his mind is full of all sorts of things. His edge has has uh, has been dulled. Or think of a person who became a Christian and was all excited but had some pretty entrenched habits in their, their life when they became a Christian. Unhealthy habits. And in the fight against sin, the ongoing daily battle, they are growing discouraged. And they've grown discouraged. And so, at one level, their desires are fixed on Christ but at another level, because of their discouragement, their focus on Christ is not as sharp. And Paul knows that they will grow in their desires for Christ. But in the meantime, he's not willing to beat them up or lay a heavy load of burden on their backs. And so he says, everyone who is mature in Christ, they think this way. And if you don't, but you're a believer in Christ, even though your faith is as small as a mustard seed, that God will help you to grow. I I read a, a quote this week from Alistair McGrath. He says, Evangelicals have done a superb superb job of evangelizing people, bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, but they are failing to provide believers with approaches to living that keep them going and growing in spiritual relationship with Him. Many start the life of faith with great enthusiasm only to discover themselves in difficulty shortly afterwards. And their high hopes and their good intentions seem to fade away. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh proves weak. People need support to keep them going when enthusiasm when enthusiasm fades. And so it's very possible that a person could desire Christ more than anything, but because of all the stuff going on, in this world, all the stuff going on in their own minds and hearts. 
that edge, that all-consuming, burning passion for Christ begins to dim. And so Paul, what he does is he slows down and he says in verse 12 and 13, basically, there is no Christian that is perfect that is perfect. If you are struggling in your Christian walk, if you feel like you're just barely hanging on, and yet here's Paul saying in our passage that these lofty things about straining forward with all his might to know Christ, to to, to always be heading toward that upward um, call of God in Christ Jesus, how would that make you feel? It might make you feel pretty discouraged to see Paul saying all these lofty things and here you are struggling. But again, Paul is very pastoral. He looks outside himself, outside his concerns. And so he says to them in verse 12, "...not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own." Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in verses 12 and 13, he's very, he wants to be very clear. I have not arrived, he says. I am not already perfect. I do not consider that I have made it my own. No Christian has, quote-unquote, arrived. No No Christian will ever arrive in this life. Let me pause here. And, uh, to use the vernacular of the, the younger generations. And, and it's time for some real talk. The true Christian life, the successful Christian life, is the life of repentance. The path of fellowship with God is the highway of repentance. And the highway of repentance is always paved with the asphalt of humility. If repentance and humility are not the leading characteristics of your Christian life, then you're on another path. You entered possibly through another gate. And you are headed toward the city of destruction. The leading edge of a healthy Christian life is repentance. It's humility that flows from that repentance. Paul is speaking in these high and lofty terms. But in the very same sentences, in the very same breath that he's talking about pressing forward toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I haven't arrived. In fact, if you want to go back to verses 10 and 11, the reason why he talks about desiring this power of the resurrection, why he is so willing to share in Christ's sufferings, 
to become like Him in His death. It's because He knows that there is so much in Him that is holding Him back from that, that high heavenward calling that He has. He knows that His own greatest enemy is Himself. I want you to open your hearts this morning to embrace what I am saying because it is true and it is vital. Our goal is to bring our lives to be in conformity with Jesus Christ. I know that that is your heart's desire if you are a believer. You pray Psalm 119, God, Help me to hide Your Word in my heart so that I might not sin against You. Help me to delight in Your Word so that I might become more like Christ my Savior. But we, at the same time, are so imperfect. We are so easily self-deceived about the progress we are making in the Christian life that we often think that we are ahead of where we really are. Or let me put it another way. Growth in the Christian life is always growth downward. True growth in grace helps us most of all to see how far short we fall of God's holiness, His glory, and His perfection. I brought some quotes with me to support this. Robert Murray McShane was a Presbyterian minister in the 1800s. Died when he was 30 years old, and uh, they all all the people who knew him talked about his holiness. But look at how McShane evaluates himself. He says, "No figure of speech can represent my utter lack of power to resist the torrent of sin." He says, none but God knows what an abyss of corruption is in my heart. Or John Knox, who is uh, often who is known to be the, the, the founder of Presbyterianism, lived in the 1500s. And here's what he says about himself. In youth, mid-age, and now after many battles, I find nothing in me but vanity and corruption. Nothing in you except vanity and corruption? Surely you are overstating the case. No. He is, by grace, looking at himself, taking an inventory of his life, honestly. Psalm 139. You know how David starts off Psalm 139? He prays, Search me and know me. Help me. Or no, I'm sorry. First of all, he says, you have searched me and know me. And then he ends the psalm by saying, help me to search me and know me. You search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Jonathan Edwards, the great congregationalist pastor in the 1700s, he says, when I look into my heart I take a, and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell itself. C.S. Lewis, 
said, for the first time I examined myself with a serious practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me. A zoo of lust, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fear, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. And then C.H. Spurgeon. I have a little picture of C.H. Spurgeon hanging on my bookshelf so he can overlook me as I'm preparing my sermons to help me remind me to always go to Jesus in my sermons because he always took shortcuts to Jesus. And he was known for his godliness and his holiness. But then listen to how he speaks of himself. He says, there may be persons who can glide along, and of course this is, he's writing in the 1800s, there may, be a, there may be persons who can glide along like a tram car on rails without a solitary jerk, but I find that I have a vile nature to contend with, and spiritual life is a struggle with me. I have to fight from day to day with inbred corruption, coldness, deadness, barrenness, and if it were not for my Lord Jesus Christ, my heart would be as dry as the heart of the damned. In other words, these people knew that growth in grace always involves growth downward. Why is it that we still struggle with sin so much? I mean, after all, when we came to God, when we came to Christ, He changed us. Remember, we made a big point of this last week. God does something for us, justification. He does something in us, sanctification. He changes us. He makes us into new creatures. He makes us... Um, he gives us new desires. He gives us desires to love God, to honor Him, to obey Him. And yet, we still go in those opposite desires. We have desires to go for God, and yet we go in the opposite direction. What is happening? Why do we struggle so much? Well, God left behind in our souls what the Bible calls the flesh. The New International Version calls it indwelling sin. It's the dead remnants of sin, for lack of a better way of putting it. And although sin is dead, it still stinks up our lives. I like John Kerr's definition. He said, This is one of the sorest trials of a renewed life, that it is built over dark dungeons where dead things may be buried but not forgotten, and where through, op through um, open grating, rank vapor still ascend. All of us have those rank vapors that ascend up in our lives, take our eyes off of Jesus, place our eyes on ourselves, place our eyes on our own self-concern, our own self-interest, and the next thing we know, we're going in the opposite direction of the desires that we have to honor God. But yet we still have these desires. And we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit breaks our hearts. And so we, we are broken hearted when we sin against God. As a Christian, you have great advantages. You have a new heart. You have the Word of God that te teaches you how to keep your way pure. You have the fellowship of the, the church, the encouragement of brothers and sisters that can surround you. But in spite of that, you are 
powerless, impotent, helpless in the face of the flesh, in the face of the indwelling sin, in the face of those rank vapors that ascend through our soul. The flesh will eat your lunch continually and then will so deceive you that you will actually believe that you are growing in Christ when you're not really making any progress at all. The new heart plus the Word of God is always powerless when faced with the flesh that lives inside us. So where's the hope? Well, we don't simply have a new heart and the Word of God. We have the new heart plus the Word of God plus the Holy Spirit. God Himself who has taken up residence in our souls. He is the only way that you can overcome the flesh. In fact, because of Him in your life, the Bible calls you more than conquerors. More than overcomers. Through Him who loved you. Paul knows that God gives His Holy Spirit to those who pursue Christ. And so He is always pressing forward and upward toward Christ continually. And we also must be always pressing upward and forward toward that high calling, toward the goal of the high calling for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ is our goal. But then I have a question for you. Does our growth in Christ depend on our zeal for seeking Christ? In other words, it's the chicken and egg question. If we're going to grow in Christ, well, we've got to seek Him diligently. But then we won't grow We won't seek Him diligently because of the power of the flesh. What is happening here? What is Paul wanting to teach us? What Paul is saying here is that it is by grace. Verses 10 and 11. It is by grace that that God pulls you forward. And it is by grace that you realize that you haven't arrived. No matter how far forward you go in Christ, you have not arrived. You have not even got close. In fact, the further you go towards God's holiness, the more clearly you see your own sin. And so your growth is downward in repentance and in humility. And sometimes it's even hard to see that that is so healthy, that that is where a Christian should live. And so while you've got your eyes down in dependence upon Christ, praying to Him, what God is doing is pulling you forward. And He's pulling you forward in the promises of Christ. In other words, here's, here's the way I want to try and illustrate it for you. We have things that God has done for us in the past that are absolutely wonderful, that we absolutely need. Christ came, as one of the young people told us this morning, 2,000 years ago, and He became sin for sinners. 
And He died on that awful cross. And then He rose from the dead. All this happened 2,000 years ago. And then God in His grace, for us who are in Christ, God drew us to Himself and He applied all those benefits to us. So all the benefits of Christ are ours. But yet we don't live in the past. Rather, we live in the future. Because all that Christ did for us guaranteed that all of His promises are for us, to quote the Scriptures, yes and amen in Jesus Christ. How can we know that our salvation is guaranteed? Christ died and He has promised that we will be with Him forever. We, how can you know that God will be with you through the trials that you experience today? Because He has promised to be with you yesterday, today, and forever. How can you live... I'm sorry, how can you stand firm in your faith when there's a tidal wave of worldliness that comes at us every day in this culture? How can you stand firm by straining forward toward that goal that God has given you in Christ Jesus? He's given you not only the goal, but the prize. How can you go down in humility and repentance by straining upward toward Christ? There, our hope of course, is rooted in the past, but it lies in the future. God um, pulls us forward. Here's the illustration I want to leave you with. In John Bunyan's um, The Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about the Slav desponding. Christian is a, a pilgrim uh, wandering through life on his way to the celestial city. And he, he stops looking around and he, he ends up falling into the slaw of despond. It's like a big pit of quicksand. And he's falling in. What's he going to do? The more he struggles to get out, the quicker he begins to sink. Evangelist comes along and begins preaching to him. And he focuses his eyes on that upward call that he has in Christ Jesus. And, and it ends up pulling him through for us living the Christian life. We have the promises of God. And, and what I want to urge you to do is take your anchor of faith that is, that, um, and you hold on to the other end of the rope, but the rope is actually a rubber band. And you take your anchor of faith and heave it into Jesus Christ because He is your goal. And then the elasticity of that band. In other words, the Holy Spirit as He's working in your life. The Holy Spirit as He's causing you to delight in Christ. The Holy Spirit as He is causing you to read and uh, to yearn for God's Word begins pulling you forward through the trials of life. Pulling you forward through the struggles, the persecutions, the hardships. It is God who brings you forward. It is God who will pull you forward. We hook our anchor into Jesus Christ, into all of His promises, His future promises that are yes and amen to us in Christ. And we 
will be able to stand firm. We will be able to live that life of repentance and humility. We will be able to um, to live effective and godly lives for Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would help uh, all of us to aim at that um, heavenward calling that we have in Christ Jesus. That we would reach that prize of knowing Christ and of living with Him forever and ever. God, I ask that You would help those who are um, in the slob despond, who are mired in the quicksand, who are uh, even uh, wondering if they are in the faith. Help them to cast their anchor, cast their faith into Christ. Hang on to Him. And I pray that You would pull them forward toward that heavenward, that holy, that prize that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray in His name. Amen.